Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. For years, ParCast has worked tirelessly to bring you an unprecedented look at history's most radical true crime events. Your support has not only allowed us to keep exploring these stories, but has driven us to keep expanding as well. So as a thank you to the ParCast listeners, I am honored to announce the release of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's available on July 12th, and you can pre-order it today at parcast.com cults. The Branch Davidians, The Anthill Kids, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults combs through the terrifying details never explored in any of Parcast's series before. This is a passion project only made possible by you. So we truly hope you'll enjoy it. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. Due to the graphic nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violent death. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. January 16, 2003, 10.39 a.m., Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The Columbia Space Shuttle's rocket boosters fired. Its engines roared, pushing it off the ground and propelling it toward the sky. Then, 81.7 seconds after takeoff, at least three chunks of insulating foam broke off the left side of the shuttle, roughly between the nose and the tank. One piece was large, approximately one by two feet. While the other foam bits fell away, this piece smashed against the Columbia's wing. It's unclear if anyone noticed the collision during the launch process, but later, Mission Control reviewed footage from takeoff and saw the strike. No one was sure what to make of it. A shuttle had never been hit by foam like this before. Nobody knew if the incident would only require minor repairs or if the crew was in life-threatening danger. NASA engineers mounted an investigation into the collision to determine how serious it was but the inquiry was half-hearted at best. In the coming weeks, they would turn down assistance from other agencies and ignore relevant information. Space exploration is one of the most dangerous activities a person can pursue, but the mission control didn't seem to take Columbia's safety seriously. Which led some to wonder, why are space agencies so willing to put their astronauts' lives on the line? And what do they stand to gain from preventable deaths? Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. This season on Unexplained Mysteries, we've investigated the most mysterious doomed expeditions in history. We've looked at why humans explore and why they fail. Today, we'll wrap up our series of doomed expeditions as we meet those brave explorers who traveled outer space and never made it home. We'll focus on the tragedy of the Columbia and take a broader look at the reasons people feel drawn to the skies. Many space explorers have died on missions beyond the Earth, 
Often, NASA, the Soviet space program, and other officials knew the journeys carried avoidable risks, but sent astronauts and cosmonauts to their deaths anyway. So we're asking, why have so many people given their lives to exploring the galaxy? And what steps can we take to protect future space travelers? We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Space still holds abundant mystery. No living human explorer has made it past our moon's orbit, so the secrets of the stars are an opportunity for discovery. But the insatiable quest for human knowledge isn't the only motive that drives institutions like NASA. Throughout history, many missions into space have served more worldly purposes, like giving the United States an advantage over other countries. Competition has fueled space exploration. It's no secret the race to the moon was tied up in Cold War tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. But even when countries seemed to cooperate, there were often ulterior motives behind their agreements. For example, in 1966, three years before the successful Apollo 11 mission put the first person on the moon, the U.S., the USSR, and the UK signed the Outer Space Treaty. It established that space belonged to everyone. No nation could own any part of the sky. Which sounds utopian on paper, but this agreement also allowed countries to fly spy satellites over their enemies. Under the Accords, Soviet officials would have no right to shoot down an American probe or vice versa. In the late 1960s, American and Soviet officials, and later Russian leaders, started co-authoring international legislation on issues related to space. They covered topics like orbital equipment maintenance and recovery plans for when rockets crashed. Then, beginning in 1972, the United Nations introduced the agreement governing the activities of states on the moon and other celestial bodies, better known as the Moon Treaty, which said, like space itself, 
the moon belonged to all of humanity. But President Ronald Reagan refused to sign it. Perhaps he didn't want to concede the U.S.'s future lunar sovereignty. Even without America's support, the U.N. formally adopted the Moon Treaty in 1979. As of today, the United States still isn't a signatory. This trend continued in 2015, when the U.S. Congress passed the Space Act. This legislation gave private firms the right to mine asteroids. So even though no government can claim a stake on space resources, corporations now can. And of course, if American companies have a business advantage, this benefits the lawmakers and civil leaders who rely on their donations and support. Even the International Space Station, or ISS, was a source of tension between superpowers. In the spirit of cooperation, U.S. and European officials agreed to work together before they decided what each agency would contribute. But when Europe offered to design shuttle engines, the United States balked. They thought it would give European agencies too much control over American missions. Instead, the U.S. requested the European Space Agency build Space Lab, a shuttle where astronauts could conduct research while in transit to or from the ISS. Initially, that suggestion didn't appeal to Europe. But the U.S. adopted a hard line during negotiations. They decided to move on with their own construction projects until the ESU was left with no other choice but to build Space Lab or not be involved at all. Then, when it came to actually constructing the station, power politics continued to play a role. American officials didn't want to share technology with other countries. They feared it would be too easy for anyone, including their enemies, to reverse engineer their classified practices. The solution was for each nation to build their own modules alone. That way, nobody would know how the other countries made each piece. Once everything was constructed, officials would put them together in space, like assembling a modular home, but one made by competing housing companies. When the first astronauts began living on the ISS in 2000, some may have thought it represented a triumph of human cooperation. But American exceptionalism had been built into its junctures and seals. Nevertheless, after decades of international infighting, astronauts felt pulled to explore the stars. The search for knowledge, the siren call of fame, or the promise of glory may have drawn the crew of the Columbia to the mission that began on January 16, 2003. The shuttle predated the ISS by two decades, and it had already logged more than 20 successful missions, Likewise, the crew was highly accomplished. The mission commander was Colonel Rick Husband of the United States Air Force. He'd been to space once before, but this was his first time in charge. He was joined by Air Force veterans, naval surgeons, the first Israeli astronaut, and the first Indian-born woman to go to space. The seven passengers were breaking new ground, but their trek didn't initially capture much attention. After all, the mission parameters weren't groundbreaking. This was a routine flight. But even routine trips into space can be dangerous. 
and Columbia's launch almost didn't happen. Around 10.30 a.m. on January 16, 2003, nine minutes before takeoff, Mission Control detected something floating over the runway. They couldn't identify what, but their radar system said a flying object was headed right toward the launch pad. This was just over a year after the 9-11 World Trade Center attacks, and the threat of terrorism was fresh on everyone's minds. Mission Control debated whether they should shoot it down. On one hand, it could have been an off-course civilian airplane. If they fired, innocent lives would be lost. On the other, if they did nothing, the Columbia crew might be killed in a preventable attack. Before anyone could take action, the problem seemingly solved itself. The blip disappeared from radar. A short while later, it reappeared, only to vanish again. It didn't make any sense. An airplane or a missile wouldn't blink in and out of existence. Uneasy but uncertain what to do, Mission Control called Commander Husband. They asked if he noticed anything unusual in the sky above the shuttle. He confirmed he didn't see anything. This was hardly reassuring. The team still didn't know what had pinged their radar. They weren't confident the launch was safe, but nobody wanted to call off a flight over a potentially minor technical glitch. So the shuttle took off as planned. At the end of the day, the radar readings had nothing to do with the infamous Columbia disaster. The unidentified object that drifted over the launch pad was a handful of Mylar balloons that may have escaped a child's birthday party. The blip never posed any risk to the astronauts, but they were still taking their fate into their hands when they blasted off into the unknown. They braved a potential terrorist attack in part so NASA wouldn't be embarrassed by a canceled mission. And this too was part of America's space heritage, Explorers losing their lives so the United States could protect its reputation. Coming up, NASA's culture of carelessness. British history may be rich with impact, but it's also rife with mysteries. In UK Unknown, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we attempt to answer some of the aisle's most elusive questions. Who was Jack the Ripper? Were secret groups controlling the empire? And who, or what, created Stonehenge? Royalty, literature, aliens, war. UK Unknown takes a closer look at Parkart's most mystifying episodes to separate hoax from history and absolute rubbish from the bloody baffling. Sit back, grab a cuppa, and catch a new episode of UK Unknown every Friday. Listen free only on Spotify. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Now, back to the story. On January 16, 2003, a piece of foam struck the Columbia's wing on takeoff. NASA officials weren't sure if this was a serious problem or not. But a few mission control personnel worried the collision damaged the shuttle's heat shield, which could have disastrous consequences. When vessels descend from space, they generate a lot of friction with the atmosphere. They can become incredibly hot, warm enough to melt the equipment on board. The Columbia was covered in heat-deflecting aluminum, silica tiles, felt, and a material called RCC. All of these were effective insulators, but delicate. A few broken tiles in a vulnerable spot could compromise the entire ship. The questions became, had the tiles been damaged? And if so, how many and where? As NASA scrambled to compile photos and video footage of the launch, they received an unexpected offer to help. The Defense Department said they were willing to photograph the Columbia as it drifted through space using their spy satellites. But apparently, NASA officials thought this was excessive. They declined the offer on the grounds that they didn't know if the problem was serious enough to get other departments involved. You heard that right. They didn't want the Department of Defense to gather information because NASA didn't have enough information to know if they needed it. This may sound ridiculous, but it plays into themes we've touched on before. The space program was all about national dominance. The lunar race was long over, but the culture of taking risks for the good of one's country was still alive and well. And this may have been compounded by American hubris. More than a decade had passed without a major disaster in the U.S. space program. So Columbia's leaders may have been a little too comfortable endangering astronauts and trusting that everything would somehow work out anyway. Launch director Mike Leinbach later noted, Prove to me that it's not safe to come home demonstrates a different management culture than prove to me that it is safe to come home. The former attitude quashes arguments and debates when there is no hard evidence to support a concern. It allows people to talk themselves into a false sense of security. Clearly, mission control should have been more careful, especially because this attitude, this tendency to play fast and loose with astronauts' lives, had already killed previous space explorers. And those accidents should have been top of mind for mission control. The Columbia took off on January 16, 2003, a couple of weeks shy of the anniversary of the fatal Apollo 1 fire. On January 27, 1967, an American crew loaded into an Apollo command module at Cape Canaveral, Florida. The team included astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. They weren't planning to blast into space or even take off. This was a rehearsal, a chance to walk through their launch sequence before the real event. As soon as the team arrived at 1 p.m., problems began. Grissom complained the craft's oxygen supply smelled wrong. It had an odd, sour odor. And the monitors that regulated the atmosphere on board kept reporting that the oxygen levels were too high. But outside the ship, 
Scientists suggested the team was causing the elevated readings by moving around too much. So they decided to move forward with the faux launch, even though the astronauts started to have problems communicating with mission control. You'd think, at this point, the leaders would call off the test and work out the kinks. But NASA officials were under pressure. Every delay increased the likelihood that their nation would lose the space race. By 6.31 p.m., Grissom, White, and Chaffee had all been on board for five and a half hours. They were strapped into their seats, ready for takeoff. Then, Chaffee sent a message to Mission Control. Fire. I smell fire. White added his own report, saying he'd spotted flames in the cockpit. The three astronauts began their emergency evacuation procedures, but they were in bulky spacesuits and couldn't move quickly. Before they could escape, tongues of fire burst out of the capsule. They were so intense, the emergency workers feared the whole structure would go up in flames. Luckily, the blaze didn't spread outside the Apollo capsule, but the men on board never had a shot. They all died. The disaster stunned a nation. But for many Americans, their grief was mixed with a sense of resolve. They wouldn't let a tragedy stymie their ambitions. They wouldn't let the Apollo 1 crew die for nothing. They would make sure the tragic events of January 27th were remembered forever. And for a while, the Apollo 1 fire was what first came to mind when Americans thought of deadly space accidents until it was overshadowed by another NASA accident. Challenger's 1986 flight was supposed to be fairly routine. The seven astronaut crew would launch, release a few satellites into orbit, then come straight back down to Earth. NASA was so confident the mission would be a success, they allowed an unusual crewmate to join their mission, teacher Krista McAuliffe. In an effort to highlight the importance of education, the officials planned to have her lead a classroom lesson from space. Challenger launched on January 28, 1986, at 11.38 a.m. It was just one day after the 19th anniversary of the Apollo 1 fire. The morning was unusually cold, the chilliest launch in NASA's history at the time. The shuttle's engineers hadn't designed their equipment to operate in frigid temperatures. The ship's rockets had rubber seals that only worked well in warm conditions. That unseasonable day, Challenger took off with the faulty boosters unsealed. The shuttle arched through the sky for a total of 73 seconds, then exploded. All seven passengers were killed instantly, and a horrified nation watched the disaster unfold, live on TV. Eager to get to the heart of the problem, NASA grounded all their shuttle flights for the next two years. They re-evaluated their vehicular needs to ensure they wouldn't needlessly lose more astronauts. And they acknowledged they'd had several advance warning signs that the Challenger wasn't safe. Before the launch, they knew several parts of the ship needed a redesign, but didn't push to have them replaced. They also knew it was too cold to take off safely, but declined to delay takeoff. 
The authorities were too complacent to recognize the danger they were putting the astronauts in. Afterward, the deaths triggered a court hearing and a promise from NASA that they'd learned from their oversight. In the future, they'd do better. But 17 years passed between the Challenger explosion and the Columbia's launch. And once again, the officials failed to take the crew's safety seriously. Mission Control didn't even bother to notify them of the foam collision for a week. At first, it seemed they made the right call. For 16 days, the shuttle drifted above the Earth. They conducted their experiments. They honored the crews of Apollo 1 and Challenger on the anniversary of both tragedies. On February 1, 2003, the Columbia began its descent, and again, the ship seemed to be fully operational. There were no indications the crew had any reason to be worried until just before 9 a.m. Eastern Time. At Florida's Kennedy Space Center, Mission Control was monitoring the descent. They tracked the shuttle's trajectory, speed, comms, and temperature controls. They noticed the left-wing's sensors were unusually hot. And shortly after their temperature readings spiked, the wings stopped transmitting data altogether. Soon, the tire pressure gauges on the left side of the plane also failed. Concerned, the Space Center radioed the Columbia to notify them of the failures. At 8.59 a.m., Commander Rick Husband replied, Roger. There was more to Husband's message than that, but Mission Control couldn't make out the rest before his radio abruptly shut down. It was clear something was going horribly wrong. The team scrambled to try to reestablish contact. For 12 long minutes, they hoped the astronauts would find a way to bring themselves safely back to Earth. But without sensor data or radios, NASA couldn't tell what was going on. Maybe there was still time to save the crew. Or perhaps mission control was already too late and the Columbia was lost. As the clock kept ticking, officials likely regretted turning down the Department of Defense's earlier offer to help. Especially because there were people who had already figured out exactly what had become of the shuttle. But NASA was still in the dark. Coming up, the fate of the Columbia. Now, back to the story. On January 16, 2003, a piece of foam broke off the Columbia. It struck the left wing, but didn't seem to cause any apparent damage. At least, not until 16 days later, when mission control lost contact with the shuttle during landing. Meanwhile, around 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, several people in Texas reported hearing an odd rumbling sound. Nobody could determine where it was coming from. Ground crews at the Florida runway were expecting to hear different noises. Around 9.12 a.m., two massive roars should have torn through the air. This was a typical part of the landing process, sonic booms that heralded the shuttle's impending arrival. But the crashes never resounded, and the Columbia didn't show. At one point, Mission Control turned on the TV, 
only to discover news reports about how the shuttle had disintegrated in the sky. That rumbling noise in Texas was the sound of the ship breaking apart high above the Earth. It's unclear how journalists got the scoop before NASA, but they even had footage of the shuttle's demise. The news was devastating, but officials weren't going to give up hope that easily. They immediately launched a recovery mission. They speculated even if the ship had broken apart, the crew capsule might have made it to the ground intact. Perhaps some passengers were still alive. Within a half hour of the shuttle's explosion, debris began falling in Texas. Officials figured the crew may have landed there. So for hours, teams scoured the Lone Star State. Three hours after the explosion, they found the body of one of the crew members. But there were still six potential survivors out there, so they kept looking. When they didn't uncover anything, they expanded the search into Louisiana, where wreckage was also raining down. But still, they didn't find any living crew members. Each time they uncovered a new set of remains, the officials became more discouraged. Finally, later that day, NASA made the announcement everyone had been dreading. The entire crew of the Columbia had been lost. But the officials still weren't certain why the ship disintegrated. They suspected the foam strike had damaged the heat shields, but they wouldn't know for sure until they properly examined the wreckage. For months, roughly 25,000 volunteers, NASA employees and first responders combed more than 680,000 acres of land, a region approximately the size of Rhode Island. Launch director Mike Leinbach called it, quote, the largest land search and recovery operation in United States history. The teams were stymied because some locals collected debris and kept it as souvenirs. The U.S. Attorney's Office announced if anyone returned shuttle scrap by February 7, 2003, they wouldn't be prosecuted for evidence tampering. After the deadline, all bets were off. This declaration encouraged many to voluntarily hand over the equipment. Some even took advantage of the grace period to pass along debris from the Challenger disaster. Ultimately, officials only recovered about 38% of the shuttlecraft pieces, even after they sent divers into the Gulf of Mexico to retrieve key pieces of debris. Once they collected everything they could, teams painstakingly laid out every single scrap they had, piecing them back together like rebuilding a puzzle. They looked for warping, melting, and other signs of damage. Certain patterns emerged. Nearly every part of the shuttle had been subjected to extreme heat. It started in the wing and spread through the rest of the ship. A ball of burning plasma then formed, melting adhesives and ripping seams apart until the shuttle broke apart. Since the deadly breach began in the same place the foam had hit, this confirmed the officials' initial suspicions. The collision had doomed the crew. We know a bit about the travelers' mindset during their final moments, thanks to another piece of evidence the team discovered, a videotape the astronauts made during their descent. 
The footage showed the team smiling, having fun. They seemed utterly unaware of their impending doom until about 30 seconds before the ship broke apart. They spent the last half minute of their flight trying to adjust their course and save the Columbia, but it was too late. It's tempting to chalk their deaths up to bad luck or some kind of curse. Like the Apollo 1 fire and the Challenger explosion, the Columbia tragedy had also occurred during the final week of January. But the real explanation is a lot more grounded. You don't need to turn to jinxes or dark forces to explain why all three crews were lost, because we know exactly what happened. We already touched on the pressure American officials felt to win the space race and the complacency that sprung up afterward. But there's one more factor that makes traveling off Earth more dangerous year after year. A lack of investment. After the first man set foot on the moon in 1969, space seemingly became a lot less exciting. Once the U.S. could declare it won the space race, budgets got cut, fewer Americans became engineers or rocket scientists, and agencies like NASA went on the decline. The United States is still a leader in the space exploration field, but it's trying to work miracles with outdated machinery, limited funding, and little to offer future generations. Becoming an astronaut today won't make you a household name. In light of all these restrictions, it's no wonder some problems fall through the cracks and human lives are lost. Today, many space programs try to minimize risks as much as possible. This means, by and large, individuals don't explore as widely as we used to. The last manned mission to the moon happened in 1972. No space agency on Earth has sent a single astronaut beyond lower Earth orbit since. Instead, most contemporary space exploration is done by machines. NASA and other government programs can launch unmanned probes into the cosmos without ever putting a human life at risk. In some cases, this is preferable to sending ships full of passengers. Satellites and robots can go to dangerous places where people could never survive, like near the surface of the sun. But mechanical explorers don't capture the imagination the way astronauts do. Probes can't stir the heart like the promise that someday, someone, maybe even you, will set foot on an alien world or gaze upon our Earth from the darkness of space. If you ever want to travel to the stars, your best bet these days may not be public space programs. Instead, many private companies are ferrying tourists roughly 50 miles into the air, letting them graze the boundary between the Earth and space before they return to our planet again. Depending on when and where passengers buy tickets, they run anywhere from 250,000 US dollars to 55 million. Entrepreneur Richard Branson, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, and retail magnate Yusaku Maizawa have all been to space on private ships. So has William Shatner, the actor who first brought Captain James T. Kirk to life in Star Trek, the original series. The experience clearly left the 90-year-old actor moved. When he returned to Earth on October 13, 2021, 
He said, quote, I'm so filled with emotions about what just happened. It's extraordinary. I hope I never recover from this. I hope that I can maintain what I feel now. I don't want to lose it. It's so much larger than me and life. As touching as Shatner's words were, the private sector's intrusion into space has some concern. After all, the Outer Space Treaty guaranteed no nation could own the skies. But if businesses lead the charge on extraplanetary travel, the universe may functionally come to belong to the rich and powerful. That said, the growth of private space companies offers unique opportunities. CEOs and financiers can take risks that public entities cannot. It all comes down to the theme we've been discussing for the past few weeks, risk and reward. Federal programs like NASA use a different calculus than corporations. The Atlantic Sarah Scholes noted in the early days of the Apollo program, space exploration was new, exciting, and a little scary. It was always tragic when we lost astronauts, but their deaths were acceptable. They'd given their lives in the pursuit of something greater. But once space travel became unremarkable, the general public became a lot less tolerant of the losses. It was one thing to lose the Apollo 1 crew as part of the race to put a person on the moon. It was something else to lose the Challenger and the Columbia during routine science missions, especially when the agency later stoked public criticism by admitting all those deaths were preventable. Schools argued the private space sector is fresher and more exciting than old programs like NASA. Each time a billionaire rockets into space, they're breaking new ground, capturing headlines. Every flight feels like something we've never seen before. People seem generally more willing to lose a few lives when it's in the pursuit of something new. And as more corporations venture beyond the atmosphere, it's likely more lives will be lost. But the alternative may be to stop stellar exploration entirely. If the general public becomes less tolerant of deadly space accidents, governments and corporations alike may decide the risks aren't worth it anymore. After all, we pay the taxes that fund our nation's programs. We buy the products that support companies. And if we decide we don't want any more people to die in space, we could get our wish. Such a decision may save lives, but it would mean giving up on all the research that can be conducted in orbit or beyond, confining our species to a single planet for the foreseeable future, setting aside our dreams of setting foot on the moon or Mars. For many romantics, scientists, and government entities, this is unacceptable. So, for the foreseeable future, it's likely people will continue braving the darkness of space. Some will lose their lives for reasons that don't seem worth it. Political dominance, a corporation's bottom line, or sloppiness. But even those risks won't deter astronauts. Humanity will continue venturing into the stars, whatever the risk.
Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. To learn more about the Columbia disaster, we found Bringing Columbia Home by Michael D. Leinbach and Jonathan H. Ward especially helpful to our research. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Instead, go out and explore. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Angela Jorgensen, edited by Ben Hanani and Connor Sampson, with fact-checking by Haley Milliken and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. The Loch Ness Monster, Jack the Ripper, Shakespeare's Lost Play. The British Isles have long been the source for infamous crimes and baffling events. In UK unknown, we cross the pond in search of answers, investigating the UK's most inexplicable mysteries. Follow UK Unknown free and only on Spotify. Catch a new episode every Friday. Hi, listeners, it's Vanessa. Exciting news, ParCast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them, is now available for pre-order at parcast.com cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before. Details which haven't even been explored in our Cults podcast. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them.